Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, April 24th. We have a jam-packed show for all of you listeners today, as there is so much for us to catch up on following a four-event week across the ATP and WTA tours. Now, if I were to point to one theme from the action we saw unfold over the course of the past week, I think that theme is pretty clear. It's to defend your title. That's what we saw at three of our four events as Iga Svantec, Carlos Alcaraz, and Holger Runa all walk away as winners. Of course, you had some funkiness over in Banja Luka, Dusan Lajevic knocking off Andre Rublev to capture his first tour-level title in quite a bit of time. And yes, we do want to touch on that. But of course, Stuttgart, the ceremonial start of the European clay court season on the WTA Tour. It was one of those rare instances you had the number one versus the number two players in the world. That is certainly going to be the lead to start our show. Of course, again, Alcaraz, Tsitsipas, everything that happened with Holger Runa in that Munich final. A lot of meat on the bone. Plenty of fodder for us to speculate about here on today's show. And if we're going to try to play catch up on oh so many things that happened in the tennis world, you know, I always like to have some help in doing so. Thankfully, I have the man who joins me just about every week on this podcast to help break everything down. Of course, you know him essentially as a co-host of this show and editorial producer for all things Tennis Channel and Tennis.com. It is our dearest friend, returning champion, David Kane. David. Welcome back to the show. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling a little worse for wear. I'm a little late for this podcast today because I was hit by a car. I'm not saying it was Iga Svantec, but it was a Porsche and the driver told me to read a book, you illiterate F word. So, um, I mean, draw your own conclusions. (laughs) All right, let's just get right into it. Because as exceptional as the tennis was... What were they thinking? Like, what was the layout? I just want to know the the person who in the pitch for the trophy ceremony was like, okay, we're going to have the player get in the car. The car is going to then drive onto the court. We're going to make sure there's as many things as possible that are in the way of this car to make the drive oh so suspicious, oh so, dare I say again, just so much tension filled and like... I don't know if it's a credit to Ega. I don't know if maybe this is a detriment on Ega, but like she was playing the, you know, she was playing the surface. I was waiting for her to like skid into some left turns. It feels like she wanted to do a little bit of drifting. And I was like, she might take out some of these lines. People like bowling balls. Like it was just, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was the least impressive her movement has been on clay all week, I guess you would say. (laughs) I mean, you would think that the Porsche arena would create a more Porsche conducive atmosphere. And yet here we are. But we we all made it through with our with our heads attached. So I guess we can be grateful for that. But like barely like you could see there were a couple of the ball people who were like, "Eh, like you're getting a little close to the alley. And 
am I wrong? Like, it looked like she wanted to drift into some turns. And maybe it's just because it is the clay courts. And that's so funny. She was. Yeah, she was far in far better control of her body on the court than she was of that Porsche. But, like, I think that's an all-time blooper in tennis history. Like, I cannot remember. It was just a mess. It was It was a delightful mess. Between that and Arena Sabalenka's free swinging with her runner-up I trophy, know. there were a lot of – just a lot going on. It, it was in many ways more exciting than the actual final. Well, I just like – it looked like it was a car coming off of like a test track, like the way they had it up there. And then they kind of like lifted it and lowered it down. And then she like raced off the track and onto the court. It was unbelievable. One of just – again – Many signature moments we were delivered throughout the course of the past week, and I appreciate you joining us here on today's show to discuss everything that unfolded. Again, a bunch of title defenses at three of our four events, a great follow-up act, I thought, from Andre Rublev as well. Plenty of things for us to discuss. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you and, of course, because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. Just go to tennis-point.com today. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. On that note, I think all of us on Tennis Twitter have been delighted to follow maybe the best emerging story in all of tennis, DK, and that's your return to the court and your continued progression in your forehand swing. And I myself was back home this past week, and I apologize for the lack of episodes on Thursday, on Friday. It was enjoyable to spend some time with my family, friends in Michigan, and that's why we have DK on to catch up on everything. I also hit the court, though, twice last week, and I haven't done a two-hit session since, like, 2019, 2020 in a single week. I don't think I have any skin left on my toes. I don't think, I mean, I know for a fact it hurts when I hit backhands because I just have two delightful blisters on my left hands that are callousing over. But it takes me like two days to get the game back now, DK. And I'm just curious for you what you're playing. Well, How frequently are you out on court? How are you feeling with your game? Well, I mean, I've been documenting my return to tennis yes, quite extensively because I've got a lot of cute tennis outfits and <laughs> I want to just, I'm really doing it for the gram. I mean, this is really the first comeback that's really just purely social media driven. Okay. Maybe we'll see more of those in the future, but I, I, I'm sensing it's probably going to take more than two tries to fully get back into the swing of things where, you know, uncovering some issues with my game that may have been pervasive over my my junior and and. Uh, early high school tennis career, learning that I played with quite an extreme grip on the forehand side, <laughs> a very, very extreme Western grip, which is really precluding me from uh, the versatility that I think I need on that side. And also a bit, bit of footwork issues on the serve that I were, were trying to work out. But uh, so far, so good. I feel I might be ready for Roland Garros. I might be got a wild card into that into that main draw. You, you just you wait. That's right. I didn't know the serve required footwork. Um, so that's a revelation for me. Well, well, when you step back instead of forward, it, it turns out <laughs> yeah. it's a problem. When you're tossing the ball up in the air. And I, I do have a very low toss. I We're, we're trying to get somewhere in between me and Potapova. I feel like we'll get there by the grass yeah. court swing at least. I like that. No, it's watching the forehand follow through. you got to brush up over that shoulder. Like that's also limiting is you're not getting that full range of motion. You're not extending through the shot perhaps. That was my 
My, my, my take back is non-existent or okay. horrible raves some of my friends on WhatsApp. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm up to all, crit- all critique at this point that the Band-Aid is well and truly off. Let me just ask you completely superficially. If I were to play Gil Gross, in your mind, who's winning that match? There's quite a bit of a height difference between the two of you. So I'm going to go with the taller guy. And I'm going to go with the one who's really into the college tennis. So I think I'm going to go with Grusk. That's the correct answer. No offense answer. to Gil Gross, who, no. who, wins it, who is the winner in my heart. But I think I'm going to go with Grusk over Gross. Yeah, in that I one. didn't ask who you were rooting for. I asked who you thought would win. Um, yeah. And the people I, that I root for very rarely win. So take that with a great yeah. song. Let me just put it like this. I think if I needed to, I would never lose to, to Gil, to Gross. I've never called him that. To Gil. Um, to Gil Gross. If I, it, could he beat me on the wrong day? If the head's not in it, yes, but I think I'm how, – how good do I need to be? It's one shot better than Gil. The goal is to get the full form back so that I can beat him like 1-1 one one or 0-0 oh oh before the end of the summer because I will be at L.A. in some point. But, yeah, it is nice to just get back out on the court. It's nice, of course, as it's getting warmer across the country to be able to do it outside as well. And I will never understand – how people struggle to transition from outdoor to indoor tennis. I get why inside to outside is hard because now you're dealing with elements, but people who struggle with indoor tennis, I'll just never understand because the conditions are just so conducive to playing your best stuff. And I think that's what we saw in Stuttgart, DK, with the indoor clay court tennis event, the only one I can think of on the calendar that we see all year long. Again, I view Stuttgart as that ceremonial start to the WTA clay court season. And, you know, more broadly, I think it was our first number one versus number two matchup we had since what, 2021 on the WTA tour. I believe that was the stat going around coming out of the final. My first takeaway and yeah, I'll just shout it out. Hell of a segue, Alex. Job well done. Round of applause for myself. I thought that looked like a battle between the top two players in the world. Coming off of that, Iga Swiatek, who wins the title, 3-4 and four over Sabalenka in that final. You know, she dropped the set to Pliskova uh, in the quarters. That was the only set she dropped all week. She just, uh, you mentioned it early, the movement is something else on this surface. The depth she's able to generate when she's sliding into her backhand is just special. But Sabalenka had her under pressure. Like those first six games of the first set, Sabalenka was the aggressor. And Iga's ability to survive that wave kind of carried her through, I thought, the course of the match. And I just thought this very much looked like the two best players in the world doing battle. And if this is the state of what the two best players look like on the WTA Tour, not a revelation nor a hot take coming, DK. We're in really good hands. Like, I thought this match was excellent, despite it being a straight set result. Yeah, there was not much between them. And I think it was a pretty solid reset in sort of our collective perception of Iga Swiatek. I think she'd taken quite a few hits over the last couple of weeks on the hard courts, whether it was, you know, the two losses to Rybakina, the loss to Sabalenka last fall, starting to wonder how does Swiatek stack up to the most powerful now really consistent hitters in the game. And I think tennis less than maybe some more judged sports or subjective sports is a bit of a perception game. And I think we were really coming into this week wondering, is Iga still intrinsically better than the field on clay. And I think if Sabalenka had won this match, there would have been more question marks 
on Iga and it would probably start to play on her mind because now she's on her favorite surface. She's coming into the clay court season with some some knocks on hard courts, but okay, I'm on my best surface. I should be able to dominate. And she really managed to grit through this week, hit through the likes of a, of a Carolina Pliskova in the quarterfinals, a Junction win to start the tournament, and Arena Sabalenka proving that she could compete with some of the game's really heavy hitters that are going to be challenging her over the next couple of weeks. But I think what we also saw Conversely, was that while Clay can accentuate the Svantec game, it doesn't blunt the Sabalenka game in a way yes. that would make it one-way yes. traffic. Yes, which which leads to some really competitive tennis. We're going to see probably very, very razor-thin margins between now and Roland Garros. Okay. You, you beat me to the punchline, which is, I think, what I was alluding to in my this was really high-quality tennis. Sabalenka's game translates, and I want to talk about that in a second, so we're going to hold that thought for the moment. But let's focus on Iga, who – and there's a lot of tangents here because, again, we're catching up till Wednesday. Long-haired Pliskova. Let's start there. Thoughts? It was a weird one, wasn't it? It just felt like a bag of magic hair. It just I like... loved it. I thought she like was faster with it because she had the cape now flying in the wind. Like I'm kind of all in on it. And the reason I bring that up is she came out guns blazing against Iga in that quarterfinal. She was up a 3-0 double break in the snap of a finger. And I will say – it's not that we don't have a TV here at CRHQ. We just have to use the Xbox to use YouTube TV, et cetera, all these different things. So it just takes a little bit more effort. And so I'm more inclined to just watch on my computer when I'm here in Indianapolis. When I'm home, my parents have TVs on the wall. And so they have Tennis Channel. And I'm able to watch this match on the TV. And, you know, I was able to watch it from start to finish, both the final and uh, that quarterfinal match. And to just. We get it. You're upper middle class. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. My parents are. Um, and just to watch Iga skate around the court in the way that she did, it was just so difficult to hurt her. And even the elite power tennis that Pliskova was playing at times because, God, was she taking uh, – was she hitting the ball aggressively? Was she taking the ball on the rise early, down the line, redirecting things, just making Iga uncomfortable – Yes, that worked for the first 15 minutes, but unless you can sustain that for two and a half hours, Ika's just going to wear you down. And she changed, she changes direction so well. The thing that stood out to me in the final, though, DK, I thought Sabalenka was too insistent on playing through the Svantec backhand. And I just don't know why anyone would make that choice ever. On a clay court, because that to me is the thing that separates Iga. It's just the consistent depth she gets on that ball. It's just you think you have her stretched in the backhand corner. You don't. And I don't know whether it was because Sabalenka was a little bit more hesitant. She's just a little bit less comfortable on this surface, hitting the forehand on the run. But God, like, I just don't know how you break Iga down on this surface because not only is she going to be able to sustain your, uh, you know, or be able to with withstand your biggest punch, but then when she does land a big first serve, when she does get a big plus one, again, you never know where she's going with that first forehand. She can go inside out. She can go short angle cross court. She can open up her body, do all these different things. If you give her a short ball on the backhand, the point is over. Her, her, we've always talked about how complete her game is. I just think this surface accentuates it in a way that really is gorgeous. Like if you watch as a tennis fan, I don't know how you can watch her compete on this surface and not say it's a, about as darn close to flawless as you're going to get. 
Well, I mean, I think what we saw over the last couple of months is perhaps that she's not the most complete player, but I think in terms of footwork, she's probably one of the best athletes on tour, just like just from a a total skills combine perspective. And I think we also saw. Can I just disagree? Why don't you think she's complete? When you say that, what do you mean? Because we could talk about the injury that she may have had in Indian Wells, but I think the lack of any real B game against the Rebakina, the fact that she wasn't able to mix it up either in Australia or Indian Wells. I think when we talk about a complete player, we think of variety. We think of someone who's able to anticipate and change game plans. And what we saw on these hard courts, even against Sabalink and Fort Worth, was maybe a lack of a ability to improvise and an ability to real. I mean, obviously, you're dealing with two of the heaviest hitters in the game when they're playing at their best. Is there a way to beat them? And perhaps that may not be true, even if you are the most complete player. But I think we put Svantec on a pedestal where we thought that she'd be able to outfox and outthink even the heaviest of hitters. So I think we saw that um, perception change a little bit. But I think we also saw it well, when you want to. Well, say? I want to jump in there. <laughs> Sorry. No, because that was perfectly put, except for I think the take, for, my takeaway from that is. I do think Ika has the variety. I do think she has the improvisational skills. I do think she has the ability to beat you in multiple different ways. But to your point, Sabalenka on her best day, Rabakina on her best day, particularly on a quicker surface, that best is just better than the all-court player. And I think that was my revelation uh, coming out of the first three months is that the peak power tennis that Sabalenka and Rabakina are able to play is so neutralizing that particularly on a faster surface like a hard court, and we're not, I don't know you even want to speculate about grass courts right now, but on a hard court, yeah, Sabalenka's and Rabakina's best can be as good as as Iga's, if not, maybe even better. Consistently better. I think that's what's surprising. Yeah. I think from the Bardi to the Shviantek eras, we, we're kind of get, we've gotten used to that amount of power not being enough. And so maybe sure. we're just seeing them be more consistent and that making the difference. But I think we have been conditioned to believe that complete tennis wins. And, yeah. you know, Rabakin and Sabalink are proving that that might not be the case necessarily all the time. But I which, accept which, yeah, with Stuttgart, yeah. it was interesting because, again, we saw the different con- – we've had this conversation with the different types of power. And yes. with Pliskova, really great, great week from her. Some really great, phenomenal winners. Does not possess the consistent weight of shot of yes. a Sabalenka. So it didn't surprise me that Svantec ultimately figured that one out. And with Sabalenka, much heavier weight of shot was able to more consistently pressure Svantec. But also I wonder what we will – what the difference will be – against Rebakina, who has shorter takebacks, who could take that much more time away from Svantec on a clay court, on any surface, but on clay. We've seen Rebakina play well on this surface, beat a player like Serena Williams on clay. So I wonder what that matchup will be like, because we saw very razor-thin margins for Sabalenka, who may not necessarily have the timing to really challenge her, because you're just getting that extra hair split second to give Svantec that extra time to get the ball back and counter it, where maybe Rybakina with her shorter take backs and, and more simplified backswing may not be giving her that same benefit. Yeah, where I would say Sabalenka, though, has a comparative edge to Rybakina on this surface, I think Sabalenka is a better mover. I think Sabalenka, the okay. power of her first step, I think she's a little bit more comfortable sliding. I think she's very good moving to her backhand wing on this surface. I think she does 
she slides out of her forehand as opposed to sliding into it. And again, that, that messes up her recovery. And I do think she was really afraid of testing that Iga forehand because Iga hits the short angle forehand on this clay court so effectively to open up her backhand cross court or just her next backhand to the open court. And, you know, again, I wonder if Robachna will be as fluid or at least maybe even fluid to the extent that Sabalenka was. But I will say, again, going back to this match in the final and again, on this surface in particular, the athleticism of Iga, just like her ability to absorb that forehand cross, that first forehand cross from Sabalenka, which overwhelmed Potapova in the semifinals. I mean, to watch, and Potapova is not a bad athlete. And to watch Sabalenka just take, I mean, Sabalenka was lights out at this event. Let's be perfectly clear. This was a good week for Arena Sabalenka, who walks away with straight set victory over Krejcikova, one and two over Potapova, and then a really fun three-set win over Bedosa. You know, Stuttgart, the indoor clay court surface, the heaviness of that ball, it it's proven that Sabalenka is very good here at Stuttgart, and this is just confirmation of that. And on clay in general, I mean, three yes. Stuttgart finals, one Madrid, semifinals of Rome. I mean, she doesn't have the Roland Garros result yet, but this is someone who's, you know, making up for lost time in terms of Grand Slam results. So I wouldn't even necessarily put that in in the box. Yeah, but I guess twofold. One, looking, well, I guess, again, yes, that's the Sabalenka piece, and I want to put the final ball on that in a second. But getting back to Iga, she is the one athlete capable of absorbing that ball. She is the one athlete, in my opinion, capable because Sabalenka was lacing backhands cross court. And Iga was like, all right, I'll do this. Like, I'm fine. Let's go backhands cross until eventually you mess up or leave something short, and then I get to redirect. That said, again, it was a break a set. Like, Iga faced, you know, Iga was, was not broken. She faced just one break point in this match. Sabalenka fought off four of the six break points that she faced. This was really clean first strike, aggressive tennis. And I just think, again, it's the totality of things Shviantek can do on this surface that separate her from the rest of the pack. And I was looking at it all time in her career, and this is where I always like to put the perspective. She's still just 21 years old. She's played 58 total matches on Clay DK. What's her record? Mm, she's probably won. Price is right. Rules. You said? Yeah, yeah out, out of 58. 50. I'll say she's won. I think you're going to get this 40, exactly right. 49. Mm, 51 and 7. And okay, by the but... way, if we did good win, uh, good loss, you know, whatever, whatever, the only one that we would scratch our heads about, 2020 Rome first round loss to Aronxa Roos. I think we might have to do a 30 for 30 on that match someday because we're going to look back at it and say, what was that? Because that was before she goes on to win, of course, her first French Open that And I think night. she's referenced that match as being yeah. one that kind of like inspired her to win Roland Garros, sort of like a fit of rage. But I mean, I, I would also consider the Sakari loss uh, the following yeah. year at Roland Garros to be a bit of a bad one because, I mean, no one was even paying attention to the state of the women's draw at, to that point because everyone just assumed Iga would win. And then when she didn't, we looked at what was left around us and went, oh, no, <laughs> what's happening? Um, but this was an important confidence building week yeah. for for Iga, it reasserts her as the player exactly. to be. And at a time when she's defending a lot of points, 
she actually has opportunities to gain. She didn't play Madrid last year. Mm-hmm. You know, now that she's defended Stuttgart, she, yes, she's defending Roman Roland Garros, but this really puts her in the best possible position to play the rest of the clay court season with the confidence that there is no one that she can't beat. And I think that was starting to become a question on hard courts is are there players who she simply cannot compete with? And this is a big stretch of the season now where she can reassert her dominance. And that was an important one. Yeah, statistically, fourth and hold percentage right now in 2023. She's now broken serve over 50% of the time, David, for 16 straight months. 16 months, she's breaking her opponents every other game. And I understand that didn't manifest itself entirely in that Sabalenka match, but she got the two breaks she needed. And I'm sorry, but if you've been over 50% for, I've never seen a run like this. Like this is a historic returning run we're seeing on the WTA Tour. And it's a testament to, again, the all-court game that she plays. I do think you nailed it again. This is why I wanted to have you here today. From the confidence perspective, you were wondering, after Indian Wells coming off of an injury with Sabalenka playing as well as she did in Stuttgart in indoor conditions that were so perfect for her serve, could And serving well again. I mean, this is really the first Iga Arena match where Arena's serving at close to 100%. Yes, maybe the U.S. Open, but that was still fairly new. This is the peak arena, and Iga was still able to win in straight sets. That's going to reverberate. Exactly. It's a message sent, and it's just the clay court season right now runs through Iga Svantec. That said, to put the final bow on it, you are 100% correct. Arena Sabalenka's best, it's global. Like, it translates across surfaces. It is not going to be hard court dependent. It is not going to be quick surface dependent. Now, I do think it will be first serve dependent. But this is four months consecutively, DK. She is number one in hold percentage on the WTA Tour through four months of the year. She's holding 85.6% of the time. Again, has five more months to go, but that would be the highest number I have ever seen in a single season. And it matches what you see with your eyes. It took an otherworldly physical performance that, again, I think only Iga Svantec is capable of to beat that Sabalenka at Stuttgart. And you talk about reverberations. You know, the theme of the week is defend your title. I do think to some extent, Arena Sabalenka defended her title as, all right, Iga's number one, but I'm number two. And I just think that message has been sent. Sabalenka has had such an up and down career that I feel like every time she hits the court, we're still waiting for the letdown. And I think there would have been every excuse for her to hit the court this week in Stuttgart, first clay court event, up against Barbora Krejcikova, who is demonstrably For very good on clay. Time, fourth time. Fourth time in a row has already beaten her once this year. You would think that this is, you know, I think any other WTA number two of the last five years would lose that match to Krejcikova. And so the fact that Sabalenka was really able to really have her way with Krejcikova has figured out that rivalry, that matchup to a T. The last two matches were not close. No, Miami and now in Stuttgart, you know, gets the really good mental win over Pedosa, who was just so close. But running into these these issue, issues closing and, and Sabalink was able to put aside the tremendous friendship that she has with Bedosa to win that match in three and recover physically in such a phenomenal way to destroy Potapova and then make it into the final and be toe to toe with who is considered to be the closest WTA equivalent to Rafael Nadal. Just a phenomenal. I mean, we're getting very close to the point to saying this is real from Sabalenka. This is the level. This is a consistent level that she's capable of delivering week in and week out. And I think given her high highs and low lows, that's not something 
I felt comfortable saying, and I'm getting increasingly more comfortable saying that as we as she continues to post quarterfinal plus results every week she plays. You want to play the game for the first time this year? Yep. Let's do it. Good loss, bad uh, good loss, bad loss. Let's just play it because Arena Sabalenka right now, uh, 23 and four, second most wins on the WTA tour. She trails just uh, Elena Rabakina, but she does have the best win percentage amongst top 50 players on the WTA tour. Four losses. Iga in this final in Stuttgart. I don't think it was a bad loss. I thought she played well. I thought Iga played better. Say it. Say it, DK. You have a look. This is why we play the game. I mean, look, based on the momentum of this would have been a really not not cataclysmic. This would have been a monumental win for Sabalenka, much more even than the hard court wins that the players have had over Sviantec for for Sviantec to hit the first major clay court event of the season and lose to another one of these power players, I think would have been a narrative shifting moment for the tour. We really would have been wondering, is Sviantec real? Is this starting to sort of crumble beneath her? Because now she's just getting outplayed by these power players week in and week out. And based on the way that Plushkova nearly beat Shiantek, I did think that Sabalenka had a better shot. But I mean, it was only one break in each set. It was just at that probably level where it was had it been slightly less competitive, it would have been a bad loss. I think it was a it was an okay loss. If she had gotten a gotten a seven five set out of it or won a set, I think I would have been a bit more impressed overall. But three and four, or whatever it was, it was it was okay. See, I don't think it would have been about the reign of Iga being over. I think it would have been more about, okay, Sabalenka's best is just the best. Like, that power tennis is untouchable. And well, that's the but that's the other conclusion you would draw. If one yeah, person is rising, then by definition, one would be Yeah, sinking. but I don't are, – are we sure Iga is sinking or that Sabalenka just caught up to her? I mean, again, this is all just, I suppose, how you're well, framing it. I mean, it's a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. I think we've seen okay. Svantec not show up to some of these matches, whether she was injured or well, not. we're talking about a hypothetical – Let's be yeah. clear, she did show up to this one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, this is the perception game. I think yeah, we, fair. We, start, we started the season, Iga Svantec is invincible. Can anybody yes. beat her? And that, that perception has been really rattled. I mean, whether it was yeah. in Australia against Rabakina, Indian Wells again against Rabakina, she skips Miami, she comes to Stuttgart. You know, this is really, you know, go big or go home. This is do or die for her in many ways in terms of her perception as the the world's best player world's certainly world's best clay court player she delivers she did exactly what she had to do she won the title she beat a bunch of power players she did her job but i think that sabalenka had a lot of momentum and certainly there was a lot of narrative momentum on the side of the power player overcoming Sviantec. and so that was a i did think that if and especially on a, a specialized court like stuttgart i thought that was potentially going to favor sabalenka just a little bit more and she's been so much more confident against a player like Sviantec. i thought maybe she would she would win it Perfectly put, I agree. You're right. 30,000-foot view, that was the question coming into this season, and Sabalenka has answered it. And to finish the thread quickly, Kirstay in Miami. Good. Well, she was. She did say she was a little injured, so I yeah. feel like we'll say it was an okay to, to not great loss, but I think Kirstay has you know played a really great tournament and then played well in the semis, so okay. Rabakina, Indian Wells final. See, that one was – I didn't love that one. I, I think that's that the she, worst loss of the yeah. season for Sablin because she just didn't play that well. Yeah, she played really bad and had yeah. so many – it was like such a nervous match from both of them. And, yeah. And Sabalenka had had the upper hand on Rabakina in the rivalry, and that was another opportunity for her to win another big title, back up the Australian Open win. She did make the final, which, again, the fact that she is – again, someone who – 
who's covered the WTA and watched it for 20 years, we're not used to, it's been a very long time since we can expect top three, top four players consistently making semis plus or quarters plus. And she's doing that. But I still thought, I thought that she had it in the bag in Indian Wells for sure. Yeah. Perfectly put. Krejcikova, Dubai. Bad loss because I mean, you can't win a set 6-0 and lose. It's a, a rule. Six, it was 6-0 and a break, which yeah. I didn't even realize because I like had to look down because I kind of like stopped paying attention to the match. And also, I mean, the only thing I could say is that she had not lost all year. And you yeah. kind of feel like at some point it was going to happen. And if anything, it motivated uh, Sabalenka to really figure out the Krejcikova game because she hasn't lost to her since. No. Well said. I mean, again, 23 and four overall this year. She is, if not the best player of 2023, certainly, again, it's a clear, pretty clear cut top three right now with how Shviantek, Sabalenka, and Rabakina have started this season. Moving beyond those two, let's rapid fire through the rest of the Suitgart takes. You are our foremost and maybe the foremost Anastasia Potapova scholar in the world. Your takeaway from a week that saw her beat Garcia in three beat Goff in straight sets, and then, of course, that first-round three-set win over Petra Martic, which, on this surface, not unimpressive. A very, but, and a wacky one, because that was a match that the live score apps declared that she won a good 20 to 30 minutes before she did. (laughs) They thought she'd served it out at 5-3, and I'm just watching the stream go and go. She's not converting these match points. I'm like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) Um, Look, Potapova hasn't had a bad loss. Talk about good loss, bad loss. She hasn't had a bad loss since Volley Nets in yeah. Austin. Yeah. And she's like, you know, one lens has, you know, lost the two matches to Bagula and then loses to, to Sabalenka at Stuttgart. So we're starting to see the difference between her and the top 10. You know, was certainly very close. Both times she played Pagula, you know, really didn't have any answers against Sabalenka. But, but again, that's a testament to just how good Sabalenka is playing right now. You know, this is another feather in the Potapova cap. I want to see a really big result from her between now and Wimbledon. I think she's capable of it. And I do think, contrary to what some people might say, that if she gets a big win or a big result, this is someone who's on a fast track to superstardom because she just delivers. She carries all the signifiers of what traditionally people look for in an elite women's player. She just is. Like I can't explain to people how the world works. That's just how the world works. I mean, whether however you feel about Potapova, However, she's handled herself in this post, you know, Indian Wells, Miami spring, uh, spring with the Spartak football club controversy. She's just somebody who is going to get a lot of attention if she starts continuing to deliver these results that she has. But there's still a long way to go. So I think it's we really have to suspend judgment there because there still are some hitches in the game. She's been able to hit through them for the most part. But now we're seeing, is she a top 20 player? Or is she a top 10 player? And the next couple of months might bear that out. 25 in the live ranking, 17 in the points race, 8th in break percentage amongst top 50 player, a testament to her all-court game. Again, that backhand, mm, it's nice. Oh, it's one of the most beautiful shots right now. It's flawless. It really is. I mean, again, if you're making the short list, I think Iga just has to be number one. Just her ability to trap the ball with her hands, drive through it, change directions, doesn't matter what pace you're throwing at her, but... Podpov is in that conversation as well. I don't find Shvantec to be very aesthetic. There's something, there's just something very athletic the sliding about the way backhand, that gets the ball. How is that not aesthetic? Like, if you were to define how I want to hit a sliding backhand, if I tried to do that, I would not have a left hip tomorrow. Well, first of all, the backhand solid. That's that's the wing. Uh, I, what is the thing I think athletically I do best comparatively to the rest of the world? I think it is my backhand because it's certainly not my jump shot. I throw a ball pretty far, but... Enough about sports. Um, 
I did. Anyways, we don't have to debate aesthetics. I I do agree with you though. I, I it's just so athletic. It's so fluid for Sviantec. That's the thing. There's a fluidity that comes with Sviantec where it's just. I, I just I, I think it's envious. There like, is isn't that what there you is want? spin. There is spin, but I don't know if there's fluidity. I mean, like with with the Potapova backhand, there is a loopiness to it that I think lends. Yeah, I guess to of the ground stroke itself, although it's pretty. I don't know. Flows pretty well for Sviantec. It's pretty straight back. Like it's really condensed. It's under the ball. She gets the edge outside the ball, and she follows through over her shoulder. Like it's very simple. Yeah, look, to be clear, one backhand has won three slams and one has yeah. not. So we're talking about which one is more effective and which one I think we would rather No, we teach, can have an perhaps. aesthetics debate. It's a podcast. We but can if do there's this. one I would rather watch, you know, yeah. it's like the difference. Like, I think they say that in figures getting player uh, athletes, you'd rather watch practice and then athletes you'd rather watch compete just because you can just watch somebody stroke and stroke around the ice. And yet perhaps that's not rewarded in the current system. Whereas the other way around, you watch someone who's just so gritty and so competitive and that's fun to watch as well. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily want to watch them practice because those skills don't necessarily translate to just going around the ice. But I think with tennis, you know, there's a, a big debate between a effectiveness, aestheticism. And I do think I think a lot of people would agree with you and say that Svantec is a very aesthetic player. She has a sort of retro quality to her game that I think people enjoy. But for me personally, I, I mean, for Potapova, it's like that mid-2000s backhand. I mean, just like the sort of exaggerated swing that I personally find very enjoyable. So it's a bit of nostalgia as well as aestheticism there. Do I ever want to watch Iga Sviantek drive a car again? Honestly, hell yes. Like, that's maybe what I want to watch more than anything else. Um, I mean, I just saw her hit me with her car. So yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I saw it up close and personal. Yeah. I was going to say no, but do I want to watch her backhand? Yes. But then I, as I was saying, I was like, no, I actually really want to watch Ega drive a car again. And so, um, all right. We do have men's events to talk about, but I'm not done with Stuttgart quite yet. When I say rapid fire, we're going through these topics ASAP. Um, not ASAP. Well, ASAP and ACAP, but Q in a- that. ACAP, yeah. Yeah, ACAP. But no, the U was dropped because it's cleaner that way. Owens gets injured. That said, has anyone done better through the first three weeks of clay than her? Like, it's uh, guy, it's looking good. Well, I mean, an underreported story in Stuttgart was just the Iga Sviantec body count. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Carolina Pushkova can't play Madrid. We don't know the situation with Alonso Shibor. She's in the Madrid draw. She's the defending champion. Will she play? How healthy is she? I mean, it certainly seemed scary. I mean, we've seen, I guess, perhaps the difference between scary and dangerous with, you know, perhaps Bianca Andreescu looking like she had a scary injury. Perhaps it was just more scary than dangerous. And maybe, you know, Anjibor pulled up in the, on the last couple of days and is feeling okay. And you certainly hope that she is. But, you know, we talked about, you know, the Jabor versus Rude debate and who would perhaps you had more hope for. And I think I picked Rude and I think you picked Jabor. And okay. we saw who picked right there. And I think that with Jabor, she's <laughs> feeling very comfortable. She's generally been healthy. And you know, I think we were all looking forward to seeing that jabor Sviantec match. And unfortunately, we didn't get to, but I think we have provided she is sufficiently recovered, we might have more opportunities for that one. That's exactly the answer. Hopefully she is healthy because her best is starting to look much more like Onjabur of Clay Court 2022. Of the quarterfinalists, Pliskova, Haddad Maya, Garcia, Bedosa, whose success felt most relevant to you? I would say Bedosa. I agree. Bedosa is, Bedosa is the, it's, you can really make, the good news for Bedosa, she's been very close to beating two of the best players on tour right now. The bad news is she was in really winning positions and wasn't able to close either of those matches. So in that sense, not great, but I think you're just, it's getting back, you know, sort of the mental legs where the physical legs are catching up. The technical legs are back. It's now just getting over that final hurdle. And if she can 
get in a position where she's not having to play these players on her second match. Maybe she's playing them on her third and her fourth. She'll be a bit more in shape, you know, just sort of getting that match, that match repetition under her belt. She hasn't really been able to do that because the rankings lower. She's playing these players earlier. So she's going to have to beat one of them at some point to, you know, continue the rise back up the rankings, but she's got basically nothing to defend now between now and what San Jose. I mean, it's like nowhere but up for her. So I think based on who I think is, figuring stuff out it's Bedosa. yeah the physicality is real she just looks more confident she just looks like she is playing cohesive tennis from start to finish there's just more play again there are more patterns implemented in her game she's less reactive more proactive i know these are all platitudes but you can see it there it's just it's better tennis than we saw over the previous couple of months i do want to give a shout out to caroline garcia who had no points to defend to start this season and was really going about consolidating her top 10 spot. Garcia, one of six players with 20 wins already this season. Now she's 20 and nine overall, and I know she doesn't have a signature result, but guess what? Wins are wins, DK. And you look for her now in the ranking. She's sitting at four. She's got a 700 point lead on Goff at five. Really nothing to add until the start of Bad Hamburg, or nothing to defend until the start of Bad Hamburg. So still a month and a half, two months to play with. I mean, again, I'm not saying she's playing outstanding tennis, although she is number two in hold percentage behind just Arena Sabalenka over that 80% threshold. I think we know what her game style is, but it's worked, and she's racking up wins, and it's really hard to be a top 10 player for a year straight, DK, and she's going to hit that top 10 mark, I think. Look, I'll say this. When I was looking at the draw in Stuttgart, and I was between Garcia and whoever Garcia beat to beat Potapova, who I thought was more likely for Potapova to beat, I thought it would be Garcia. And it was, it was Tatiana Maria between the two of them. And I thought that if Garcia won, that Potapova would have an easier time of making the semis out of that section. And I ended up being right. I think ultimately, you know, Garcia has racked up quite a few wins at lower tier events, has not really shown up yet at any tournament that matters between now and Madrid. And she's going to have to soon because these points are going to start to peel off her ranking. But she does have the benefit of being the WTA Finals champion. That basically gives her twelve a 12-month runway to defend those points. And whether she'll do that, I'm not entirely sure. It feels like to me she's been white-knuckling it. Um, you know, there's only big tournaments between now and Wimbledon. So she'll have to really put up her, you know, go big or go home, as they say, over the next couple of weeks. So I'm not entirely convinced, but we shall see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I think that's a good status report of where things stand. Last Stuttgart-related question for you. And I owe a massive thank you to Katie Bolter, who tweeted exactly what I was thinking as it was unfolding. Thankfully, I was on the treadmill, so I was unable to send out the tweet because I was too sweaty. Uh, But she did it on my behalf. When Yelena Ostapenko is up a set and a break, weren't we all thinking— as I have thought all year long quietly, and I haven't vocalized it much on this podcast, but let's vocalize it now. I do think Ostapenko's best is better than it has ever been. But just, like, I don't know how she loses. The, I mean, the first 30 minutes were breathtaking. And then it just falls apart against Jabur. I don't know, 13-9 this year. Again, the streakiness has been this story since she emerged onto the scene in 2017. But I do just think her best is a little bit better this year. And again, like, I was fooled, like everyone else, but it did look that good for a little bit, DK. 
I mean, it was a really good three and a half sets because she yeah. killed Raducanu in the first yeah. match and then was up a set in 5-3 on uh, Jabor. And I really did think that Ostapenko had that one because Jabor was not playing great and she seemed like she was ready to exit stage left. And then, you know, Ostapenko couldn't find the court for, you know, about eight or ten points and that leveled the second set. Jabor, you know, got back into the match and ends up winning it. I do agree that she is going to be one of those players for whom when we pay, play the good loss, bad loss game, I don't think... If a top player loses to Ostapenko, it will be because they played particularly bad. It will be because Ostapenko just hits that groove and just knocks them off the court. Because I do think the serve, when she is playing well, has gotten better. I do think that the game is just more consistent. Could she be better fitness-wise? Yes. I mean, I think she has like sort of settled into a certain stasis physically that perhaps is not ideal but she's able to hit the she has such great timing when it's working that it kind of doesn't matter but i do we've seen what wonders even just marginally improved fitness has done for a player like potapova i wonder if that's the final piece of the puzzle for ostapenko she could just get in slightly better shape will she be winning would she have won that match basically it just brings me back to my Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club analogy, which I haven't gotten to make for you in so long, DK. There's a reason that in the corner of the neighborhood back there, there's a house that on some Halloweens, they go a convoluted hard. metaphor. You have the blow-ups, <laughs> you have the lights, you have the best candy in the neighborhood. And then other times, there's just a sign on the door that says, sorry, we don't do Halloween this year. And that's Yelena Ostapenko's house in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. You talk about that transcendent power, that ability to just hit you off the spot. She can do it on the right. Do you days. know? Do you know Elena Ostapenko's favorite holiday? Is it Halloween? Oh no, Elena Ostapenko doesn't care much for holidays. The only holiday that she likes is her birthday. Yeah, checks out. She's a, a spectacular answer. I was asking her last fall. I was like, "Are you planning anything for like the holidays?" She was like, "I don't really care too much for like New Year's and Christmas and stuff. I'm really more excited for my birthday." And I was like, "You do you. That's yeah. that really tracks." <laughs> Again, that's Ostapenko for you, but. No, I mean, I guess then this is where we'll end part one of this conversation. Stuttgart as the opening act for the European clay. Not too shabby, right, DK? I mean, I've been calling it the Thunderdome for years. And so <laughs> because the way that the draw is so stacked, we you don't necessarily even have to have the top seeds in the final for it to not for it to be an exciting final. And yet we managed to get the top seeds in one of the toughest draws that they will be in all year. And the top two seeds made the final. I mean, I think that's a great, um, in, a ringing endorsement for this, again, this current crop of top women who are consistently making it to the latter stages of these tournaments. And that's not something that you could have said for a really long time. So now that it is happening, we have to shout it out and give it the credit that it's due. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been 32 matches since 2000 between the players ranked number one and number two in the world. And I believe the last time we had it, excuse me, it was the 29 Shenzhen finals between Barty and Pliskova. Yeah, this one lived up to the hype. You had plenty of uh, – go ahead. I was going to say a wild reminder that Pliskova was number two right before the pandemic. Like who <laughs> who remembers? God it's bless. Like, but- yeah, 2019 is the season that will forever be forgotten because of what transpired. I mean, the question is – Unless you're gonna, Canadian. No, you know it's yeah, exactly. You know it's gonna be at a bar somewhere. Trivia question who won the twenty twenty Australian Open women's singles title? And Sonia Cannon will be the answer for the next three decades, and you and I will be prepared for that DK, and that's where we'll thrive. You were I hope you were up at, at three in the morning for that one. Yeah. What else do I do, DK? I mean <laughs> got two yeah. eyes and a heart. <laughs> I wasn't sure if there was like a college match that ran late and you were like, No, I gotta get my sleep. <laughs> 
2021. They play indoors that time of year. Yeah, 2021 indoors, February. That match went till 2 a.m. Shout out UNC over Texas. Still the best match I've ever seen, DK. Still the best match I've ever seen. Not quite Kirilenko, Redvonska, but whatever. I'll take it. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hope all of you enjoyed part one of my conversation, breaking everything down that's happened over the last week in the pro tennis world with our dearest of friends, David Kane. Now, it was such a busy week in the pro tennis world, we decided to offer two podcasts to all of you listeners here on Monday. We will have part two of my conversation with David Kane, breaking down everything that happened on the ATP tour this past week for all of you later today here on this mini break podcast feed. Of course, you can find all of our content on our website, crackedrackets.com. While there, you'll see we're not just talking ATP and WTA tour. Things are heating up in the college tennis world. NCAA tournament right around the corner. We break down each and every week of Division I college tennis over on our Great Shot podcast feed. Of course, we also have a podcast breaking down everything that happens in the challenger world over on that GSP feed. I've been so fortunate to speak with so many fantastic minds in the tennis world as well over on our Cracked Interviews podcast, whether it be pros like Peyton Stearns, Jason Jung, college players like Abby Forbes, coaches like Rich Bonfiglio. A lot of great content for all of you tennis fans right now available on our various Cracked Rackets podcasts and platforms. So make sure you like, rate, subscribe, review to all of them. Of course, a massive shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A massive shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point for their support. Remember, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all later today. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>